Thank you, Ash. Thank you, musicians, for serving us and blessing and helping us this morning. Morning, friends. Morning. I, uh, I got a feeling it was about, could be as many as eight years ago that Rachel and I joined many of you for a church weekend. And for some of you, that's probably the last time you heard me. And so, that's all right. I, I get it. A little of me goes a long way. I understand that. But I'm delighted to be back with you. This is, I think, the first fully unrestricted Sunday morning service at which I've had the privilege of, of preaching. And so I'm excited about that, and I'm very happy that it should uh, work out that I'm here with friends from Great Parks. Um, some of you, I think, many of you will be encouraged if I just add something uh, to the, uh, the report which Tom gave us earlier on the activities of activities of last week, uh, you'll be uh, encouraged, I know, to hear that during the course of a week, several young people came up to me and said just quietly and personally to me that they had prayed during that week for the first time to ask Christ to be their saviour. So that just blessed the socks right off me, uh, and I suspect it has the same effect for many of you. I, I was introduced to an assembly hall full of school children some while ago by a head teacher in this way. He said, well, we're glad to have Bob Telford with us today. Uh, Bob is a travelling religious expert. <laughs> well, as I told the campers last week, I've had some thoroughly naff introductions in 50 years of ministry, but that's got to make the top five, if not indeed in the number one slot. I mean, he really was, was wrong on almost every count. I really don't think of myself as being religious in the traditional sense. Um, I'm not an expert on any subject under the sun, as far as I'm aware. The only thing he got right was that I do travel quite a lot. And uh, I mention that because we're looking today at uh, one of the journeys, or an incident or two, in the journeys of a man who was a, an incredible traveller. Indeed, Acts of the Apostles, the book we've been studying here at Great Parks, uh, from chapter 11 on, can really be titled The Adventures or The Journeys of St. Paul. In the course of about 30 years, the Apostle Paul, it's estimated, covered over 10,000 miles, chiefly on foot. And uh, he was not a rambler, he was not doing it for pleasure, he was not an explorer, he wasn't an entrepreneur, he wasn't to try and open up new trade routes or open up new markets, he was an envoy. He was a man who had a sense of being sent, and his journeyings were marked by urgency and by determination and by single-mindedness. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 21, as we've had read to us, which takes us into the period when his third and indeed his final great missionary trek was beginning to draw to a conclusion. At this point in his life, he was probably in his late 50s, and I think that by some sort of spirit-driven intuition, Paul knew that he did not have many more years left in this world. His labours were beginning to come to an end. And, uh, but he wasn't ready to hang up his sandals. He wasn't going to spend his remaining years improving his golf game or anything of that sort. Nothing wrong with playing golf, and if you're going to play it, you might as well play it well, but that wasn't on Paul's agenda. I think Paul was the sort of man whom, if you spoke to him about retirement, 
he would say retirement's a really good idea and two weeks is about long enough. That seems to be the, the spirit of St. Paul. Uh, there was a, a, a vicar who was appointed to be the parish priest in a, an Anglican church. Um, and uh, when he was in his 80s, he was still the parish priest. And the bishop tried to just gently hint that perhaps he must be thinking about retiring. And the, the vicar sort of drew himself up to his full height, bridled somewhat, and said, uh, when I took this position 54 years ago, no one told me it was to be a temporary appointment. <laughs> well, that's great. And the Apostle Paul clearly had that sense. He was, he was in it for the long run. He was going to serve Jesus. He was going to travel and tell people about Jesus uh, until the Lord, one way or another, uh, took him home. And uh, so we pick him up on his third missionary journey. And by this time, he's, uh, he's clocked up a number of miles, possibly as many as 3,000 miles by the time he gets to Ephesus, which we would have read about had we looked at Ephesus, Ephesus chapter 20. And uh, it's uh, Ephesus, Ephesus 20... Don't, don't get your teeth out of a catalogue, never really fit. <laughs> um, when Paul was in Ephesus, as we read in chapter 20, it was a time of, uh, of goodbye. It was a farewell. And it was a particularly poignant time, because we read in that chapter that Paul was very straight with the people that they would never see his face again in this world. Now, the pain of parting can be very, very sharp. Many of us know that. And it's made all the sharper and all the more bitter when there is not the prospect of a reunion. And that is what grieved and really broke the hearts of people to whom Paul was speaking in Acts chapter 20. These were not just his friends. They were spiritually his family to a great degree. Many of the people in the church at Ephesus had become Christians because of the Apostle Paul, his preaching and his praying and his working with them. They were his spiritual children. Do you understand that? He was, in large measure, their father in Christ. And there was a tremendous bond of affection between them. So their separation was no casual thing. You see that in chapter 21 and verse 1. Uh, it was necessary to tear ourselves away from them, writes Luke, Paul's, Paul's travelling companion. We tore ourselves away from them. Uh, and it, uh, it was painful for Paul. It broke his heart, but it did not break his will. Now, we have to see that. He would not be dissuaded from his God-given determination to go to Jerusalem. And, uh, well, they embark on the journey. They, they travel, first of all, a, a voyage around coastal waters, and then they take a ship which is heading across the open sea to the Syrian coast. And there, in verse 4, they pause, Paul and his companions, they pause for a week, and they spend time usefully with a group of people who are called in Acts 21 and verse 5, disciples. They are disciples of Christ. We need to make that distinction because the word disciple in the book of Acts does not always refer to followers of Christ. But in this instance, it does. The word disciple means a learner and a follower. And when Paul lands, he seeks out the people who are learners of and followers of, of Jesus. And he spends a week there with them. Now, this church in Tyre on the Syrian coast had not been started. Unlike so many others, it had not been started by the Apostle 
Paul. It's quite possible that the believers did not know Paul, although they undoubtedly would have known about him. But affection grew incredibly rapidly. That's how it is amongst Christians. I, I don't know, some of you perhaps visiting today, I, I hope that if you visit this place and you spend any significant time, or even just a, an hour or so, with believers who come here to Great Parts Chapel, uh, that you will begin to feel that bond of, uh, of affection and kinship and oneness, uh, not because you are part of the same tradition, the same denomination, but because you are one in Christ. It's a wonderful thing, the way affection can spring up and develop so quickly between God's people. I, I, I have travelled not as, well, not as, actually I've travelled further than Paul. Most of us who've been overseas have, in just in miles, but we didn't do it on foot, did we? But I have travelled fairly extensively, three continents, 20 or so countries, teaching and preaching about Jesus. And uh, it's a wonderful thing how you can just so quickly develop such a bond with believers with whom you have little in common other than your faith in Jesus Christ. It happened to me some uh, while ago. I'll just very quickly tell you this, a most erratic thing. Um, I, I was in Bodmin, so not all that far from here, taking some meetings some years ago. And uh, I was talking to Rita on the phone uh, one evening, and she said I had had a, a message, an email from a Canadian military chaplain in Labrador, eastern Canada. Uh, inquiring whether or not I would be interested in going to do an evangelistic mission on a Canadian Air Force base. Um, I said, well, this is very strange. I, I don't know anybody in Canada, and I'm pretty sure nobody in Canada knows me. Uh, I am, when all said and done, an evangelist of international obscurity. Um, there are people across the road who don't know me, let alone people across the street, across the seas. So I said, well, I'll look into it when I get back. Well, I exchanged emails. We had probably no more than half a dozen emails between us. And the moment I stepped off the plane at the Canadian Air Force Base, Happy Valley, Goose Bay. I mean, what a wonderful address, isn't it? Happy Valley, Goose Bay, Labrador. And I shook hands with this military chaplain, this Air Force Padre. Um, I tell you honestly, friends, it was as if we had been brothers and friends all our lives. And that is a friendship which has endured. It has led to many visits since then, and every time we meet, it is as if the months and the years between just mean nothing at all. We just pick up where... Do you have a friendship like that? It's wonderful. And it's because, ultimately, it's because we're both believers in Jesus Christ. And that's what's going on here. These believers are very, very fond of Paul and... And some of them we saw, now if you're still looking at your, your scriptures, um, you'll see in verse 4 that some of them um, had a bit of prophetic insight. God's Spirit enabled them to just see what was waiting for Paul around the corner. And uh, they urged him, verse 4, not to go on to Jerusalem. Well, that was not the first warning that Paul had had to that effect. He had been warned on a number of occasions exactly what it was he was walking into if he persisted in his course. He had said in Acts chapter 20 and verse 23, I know this, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So this wasn't news to Paul. Um, but as Professor F.F. F. Bruce remarked in one of his commentaries on it, Paul's mind was made up. And he was not to be diverted from his intentions by such 
predictions. And so in chapter 21 and verses 5 and 6, look at it with me, we have another painful parting. He's had a very painful parting from the believers in Ephesus, and now the believers in Desire, whom he's begun to get to know, and that bond of affection has grown, now it is time for another painful parting, and another sad procession. As the believers and their family company, Paul as he walks to the beach, and then they pray for him as he boards the ship. Well, on to Ptolemy, or Ptolemais, uh, where we read in verse 7, he uh, went ashore and he spent a day with what here are called the brothers. Uh, um, it's a word, brothers, which is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Nearly always with regard to, to um, Christian believers. Uh, and I, I actually think that in most of the occasions it's used, it's a, it's a generic term. For Christian believers, it's not a gender-specific term, as, as we might think. Um, often when we read in the Bible the word brothers, we, we can reasonably insert the words and sisters as well. And, uh, but the word brothers underlines the wonderful truth that Christian believers are part of the same family. Do you get that? Christian believers are all part of the same family. And the Church of Christ is a family. It, it is not a business... It is not an enterprise, it is not a project, it is like an army, it is like a body, it is like a flock, but at its heart it is a family under God. And it's a wonderful family to be part of. Let me be frank with you, it, the church is a pretty soft target if people are looking for something to criticise. It, it, it is. Uh, and, um, and I confess I've taken my fair share of pot shots at at churches and the church as well over my life. But I will testify this. In my experience, there is no company of people on the face of God's earth quite like the company of God's people. When your back is against the wall, when everything is going against you, it is a wonderful thing to be part of God's family. It really is. And I, I tell you quite frankly, if you're not part of the family of God because you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, you seriously do not know what you are missing. It is a wonderful thing to be part of God's family. And here, Paul spends this time with, with the brothers. And then finally, eventually, he sets foot on dry land at the end of his voyage and he steps down off the boat and goes to Caesarea, where we read in verse 8 that he stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. He had four unmarried daughters who, who prophesied. It, now that to me, you see, probably only a travelling evangelist like me would pick up on this, but that to me is, a, is an interesting twist on, on the way things normally happen. Because I suspect that as a travelling evangelist, which... Philip had been before he settled at Caesarea. As a travelling evangelist, I expect Philip at many times been on the receiving end of the hospitality of other people. And it's good to see that somebody who had received hospitality was himself hospitable. Don't ever underestimate the importance of hospitality. It is a huge thing. It's a very big thing in the New Testament. Indeed, it's such a big concept, such an important thing in the New Testament, that if a person is not as the Bible puts it, given to hospitality, if they are not hospitable to others, they are actually not fit for church leadership. Do you know that? The very strong connection between those, those two things. And here's Philip the evangelist giving hospitality to Paul, the 
evangelist. Um, somebody once defined hospitality as the art of making someone feel at home when you wish they were. <laughs> uh, here's hospitality being given. Now, as, we, uh, as far as we can make out from the scriptures, Philip had been settled. He had been a, a, a traveling preacher. But he settled down probably about 20 years before Acts 21. And he settled down at Caesarea. And he uh, clearly married and he raised a, a family. And yet he is still designated, even though he's living in one place and he's spending time in one place. And clearly that's where he's really grounded and earthed in. He's still designated as an evangelist. And I, I think that's significant. You see, there are only three places in the New Testament where the word evangelist is used. And this is... This is one of them. And it seems to me from Philip's example that evangelists can legitimately be itinerant, they can be travelling, or they can be settled and minister in one location. They can be local, they can be national, they can be international, or all three of those things at different times in their lives. They can be married or they can be single. They can focus on evangelising individuals or they can focus on reaching the masses. Philip's example shows us that evangelists are not required to be poor Homeless, dependent on others, they are free to marry, to raise children, to own property, in short, to have a normal life. But they are also free to do none of those things. And this is a man whom Paul is now staying. And we note, of course, you will have picked up on this, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Well, that must have been a great joy to him, wasn't it? I mean, here he's, he's got three daughters. They've all come to a personal faith in Christ and they're all using the gifts that God has given to serve the Lord. I tell you, as a dad, it doesn't get better. I've had the privilege of leading each of my children to, to Christ when they were all around about eight years of age. And over the years, my heart's just been full so often. I remember um, my, my eldest son, uh, along with another Christian teenager, started the Christian Union in his school. In what went on to join the exec of the university CU as the evangelism executive before his life was, was, was cut short. My daughter, some years ago, came out to the West Indies, to Jamaica with me. And one of the pastors on the committee organising the meetings I was speaking at, um, knowing my daughter was there, came to me and, and said, whispered in my ear, just as the meeting was going on, said, can I ask your daughter to come up on the stage, come up up front and... and and give her testimony, talk about how she became a Christian. I said, well, you can ask her, yes. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to, but you, you can. And, uh, and he did, and, and so he did. And I sat there listening to my daughter telling several hundred people in a country thousands of miles away from home about her faith in Jesus Christ. And I sat there thinking, thank you, Lord. I don't think it gets much better than that. Well, and it didn't until my youngest son went to Kenya to, to, to study the Bible and to tell people about Jesus. Now, I say that, but I'm very mindful that that is the grace of God. I mean, believe me, my parenting, not, I won't presume to speak for the quality of readers' parenting, which has been significantly better than mine, but my parenting ha has been erratic. You know, um, I've got plenty of things wrong, as well as perhaps by the grace of God, a few things right. But we realise that our children have come to know and love the Lord and that they're following the Lord today uh, because of the grace of God. I know so many good godly people who, the, the, the fastings whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, who've done everything right, it seems. They've done everything, as it were, by the book in bringing up their families. 
and yet they bear a daily heartache for their children and their grandchildren. I, do, I have no judgment in my heart or criticism of anyone in that situation. I grieve for you. I encourage you to keep on praying for your children and for your grandchildren. But you can understand the joy that Philip must have had, can't you? I mean, don't get, look, friends, don't get hung up on whether or not we ought to be having people like Philip's daughters and Agabus, of whom we'll read in a minute, uh, working in our churches today. If we get hung up on that, we miss the point here. The point is, here were young women who'd come to Christ and they were serving the Lord with the gift that he'd given them. And what a joy that must have been to Philip. And what a joy for Paul as well, to be in a home like that, a Christian home, where Philip and his family loved the Lord. And... It, Arguments from silence are often quite dodgy. You know, trying to make a point for something the Bible doesn't say can be a fairly tricky business. But I do want us to note there's no record here of Philip or his daughters trying to dissuade Paul from going on to Jerusalem. I think that's probably quite significant. And I think it's because Philip understood Paul, and a few others would have. They had hearts which beat as one. They were both completely sold out to the business of telling people about Christ, and even built more than that, they were sold out to the business of putting God and God's will first. I think for the first time, for a long time perhaps, Paul had found someone who understood what was driving him and what was pushing him on. Well, right, well now we, we read on, and in verse 10, uh, we are introduced, or reintroduced really, if we've been going through Acts, to the prophet named Agabus. I confess, I had a sort of rather... Flippant thought, I just found myself wondering for a moment whether Agabus was married. It just struck me he might potentially be a good match for one of Philip's daughters as they were. Oh, but what do I know? Um, enter Agabus. And Agabus was a prophet. He was a man to whom God gave insights from time to time and through whom God spoke about what was to happen. And he was a good prophet in that he had a good track record. Earlier in the book of Acts, he had prophesied that there would be a famine and uh, that, that prompted the believers to put their hands in their pockets and to start a relief fund for other Christians who would be affected by the famine. And true to Agabus's word, the famine came and uh, that demonstrated that the property was from God. Well, Agabus, we read, um, uses a little bit of drama or mime or whatever to underline the message which he wants to pass on. Coming over to us, we read in verse 11, he took Paul's belt, tied his hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of his belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. But please notice that neither here, nor in the earlier instant in Tyre, was there a God-given prohibition. We have to see the difference between a prediction and a prohibition. There was a repeated prediction that, humanly speaking, in terms of Paul's physical welfare, this journey was not going to end well. But there was no prohibition from God. When the believers heard the prophecies of what was waiting for Paul in Jerusalem and beyond Jerusalem, they inferred from that that Paul should not go. But that is not what God was saying. Indeed, right from the week that Paul, then Saul, had become a Christian, he had been aware of the things that he must suffer for Jesus' sake as he stood and preached before kings and emperors. Saul knew right from the get-go the sort of ending that his life was almost certainly going to have. 
And just as Jesus before him had set his face, I says, like a flint, he'd set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem, knowing what would happen, Paul is actually doing exactly the same here. He's not being stubborn, he's not being willful, he has a witness in his spirit that he is to go to Jerusalem, even though he knows, humanly speaking, that will not end well for him. He was deeply moved by uh, the pleading of the believers, wasn't he? You see that in verse 13. Paul answers, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. You've got to know when to, when to quit. Actually, there is a very important lesson here, I think. It is this. Be very slow to pronounce what you believe to be the will of God for another person. Seriously. Uh, most of us, if we're honest, have enough problem discerning what God's will is for us, let alone deciding what it is for other, other people. Uh, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? It was breaking his heart, but it was not going to break his will. He was saying in effect to these believers, look, I know, I know you mean well, but actually you're not helping. You're not helping. I'm ready for everything that's coming, so let's get on with it. And so he goes back on the road and eventually he lands at the home of, of Nason, uh, who was a Cypriot believer. And that's it. That is the account of the, uh, that part of his journey in Acts 21, verses 1 to 16. Let me just now not look again at the detail of it, but at some of the principles which seem to be working out and are visible in it. The first one is this, is the obvious love between Christians. The importance of love between Christians. Many centuries ago, a North African man became a believer. His name was Tertullian. He became a writer and an apologist for the Christian faith and a church leader. And he, he mused one day about what unbelievers, what pagans would say if they took a good, hard look at the church. What they would say if they took a good, hard look at Christians. He said, surely they would say, see how these Christians love each other and are ready to die for each other. Uh, years ago, Rita and I were working with the Birmingham City Mission before we joined uh, uh, counties, and um, we just started out in our, in our, our marriage and in our ministry, and uh, we, were, uh, we had uh, very little by way of support or, or guaranteed regular income, and... Um, at that time, uh, around that time, my father died and my mother was living in London and was very, very uh, unhappy, of course. And so we were spending quite a lot of time with her and I was often driving down to London to, to pick her up or, or perhaps to meet her at Birmingham, Birmingham Station, whatever. And uh, my mother noted that uh, most times when I went to get her, I was driving a different car. And generally, generally a rather nicer car than perhaps uh, she would have expected me to have at that point in my life. So one day she summoned up the courage to ask me where I got all these cars from. I think she was worried I'd slip back into some old, unregenerate patterns of behaviour, frankly. Um, so I explained, I said, well, you know, our cars are wreck. It's more often sort of on the ramps being worked on or whatever than not on the road being driven. I said, but it's the people in our church. Now, we went to a very bog-standard, unremarkable, independent evangelical church. I, I'm now going to say like great parks, but I realise that's... that's <laughs> More uncomplimentary than I mean it to sound. I just mean it to, it was nothing remarkable about it, just sort of 
40, 50 people or so, and um, uh, nobody very rich or anything of that sort, just ordinary folk. But I explained to her, I said, look, you know, when, when the Christians at our church, many of them, when they see that our car's off the road again, they know I need a car to travel around and do my job. So uh, they're amazingly generous, and they, they, they lend us their cars, you see. Uh, and it's true. And um, I mean, the men in the church were wonderfully, particularly generous and sacrificial, and would often say to me, oh, I see you're without a car, please take my wife's car. Now, this is the interesting bit, and the significant bit. At that time, my mum was very low, and very lonely. And this is what she said to me, it's a direct quote. Oh, she said, I wish I could find a community of love like the one that you and Rita have found. Isn't that a brilliant epitaph? Isn't that a brilliant testimony for a Christian congregation? Yes? Let me hear you. Yes, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know... We can be known for all sorts of things. The quality of our teaching, the way we cater for families right across the board, our, our cradles of a grave range of activities. But there is no better testimony for a Christian congregation to have than to be known as a community of love. And that's what comes out of this passage to me. This is more important than whether or not the gift of prophecy is for our day or not, and how can you tell who is and who isn't a prophet? That's all very interesting. Uh, and I'm sure if you want to talk about that question, then um, come up to me afterwards and I'll find somebody who wants to talk to you about it. Because <laughs> I'm blown if I'm going to. That is that the takeaway from this message. The takeaway is see how these Christians love each other. The second thing which uh, is underlined to me is their incredible openness to God, their spiritual sensitivity. I mean, God was speaking. And they were, they were listening um, they expected to hear from God. And uh, they were open to hear from God through people whom he had called and gifted. That's an attitude we need to develop and work on, isn't it? Not just when we come to our services, but perhaps particularly then. To be open to hear from God. To be open on the Godward side is a hugely important thing. And thirdly and finally, the importance of grit of resolution. The American essayist and uh, writer Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing great is ever accomplished in this world without enthusiasm. And that's true. That's true. We, I mean, we need cool-headed, analytical, dispassionate thinkers. We need people like that to be in our churches. We need people like that to lead, to lead our churches or to be in church leadership. But let me tell you this, analytically-minded, cool, dispassionate people are very important, but they are not inspirational. We also need people who've got enthusiasm and a bit of passion. But I would add something, if I may, to Ralph Waldo Emerson's quotation. Nothing great in this world was ever accomplished without determination, without sheer grit and digging in. And that's what you see here from the Apostle Paul. He had decided to follow Jesus, whatever the cost, and for him there would be no turning back. Now, I, I realise that the clock has uh, raced on. I discovered just before I got up to preach that my, my watch um, has now joined the ranks of those timepieces which are right twice a day. <laughs> it seems to have decided to stop. As soon as I came down into Devon, it gave up the ghost and decided, I don't know why, but there it is. Uh, but time's running on, but I'm going to 
stretch your grace a little bit further by asking you this question. Have you ever heard, we'll have a show of hands please, have you ever heard of a man called Sadhu, which means holy man, Sadhu Sundar Singh? Who's here? Thank you, a, a, a few of you, good. Well, Sadhu Sundar Singh is a man, it's worth, when you go home, Google him, Sadhu, S-A-D-H-U, Sadhu Sundar Singh. He's uh, uh, a man, he lived over 120 years ago. He was born into a Sikh family in the Punjab. Um, he was sent to a Christian school, and whilst he was at the Christian school, his mother died unexpectedly. He was so angry at God for the death of his mother, he was only 14, um, that he burnt a Bible in front of his school friend as an expression of his anger and became a completely um, uh, rebellious young man. He decided to kill himself. But the night before he planned to throw himself under train, he, he prayed that the true God, this is a quote, the true God would reveal himself to me, he prayed. And that night he had a vision of Jesus. That, that's actually not at all unusual for people in Asia where they are begin to be spiritually seeking, for God to speak to them through the means of visions and dreams. He had a vision of Jesus and immediately he believed and he began to work as a missionary to his own people in the face of fierce opposition, poisoning, beatings, stoning, and the rest. Actually, he became known as the Apostle of the Bleeding Feet. Really, you need to read about Sadhu Sandar Singh. The Apostle of the Bleeding Feet. Because from the age of 16 to 30, he walked through the Punjab, Afghanistan, Tibet, Ceylon, Burma, and Malaya, and the length and breadth of India, preaching as he went. And he vanished without trace at the age of 30 in the Himalayas, where it is believed that he died. All right, well, now that's the biography in brief of Sadhu Sandar Singh. The reason I'm telling you is because one of the lesser-known accomplishments of Sadhu Sandar Singh was that he wrote songs. And one song he wrote has probably been sung by most of us here at one time or another, particularly if you're my age or kind of creeping up on that anyway. Um, and yet we probably didn't realise when we sung it who it was who wrote it. It was written by Sadhu Sandar Singh. And he wrote these words, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Bit of grit. Bit of resolution there, friends. A decision to follow Christ can be made in a moment, but it must be a decision for a lifetime. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I hope you've got some takeaways from this message today. It really blessed me as I was preparing it. I hope it's blessed you as it's been presented and found its way into our hearts. I look forward to joining you tonight on Zoom as we look into a, a, a tremendous passage. On the face of it, it doesn't appear. It. A passage from Galatians 2, about which I've got really excited as I've prepared. So I really look forward to sharing God's word with you tonight. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the record of your servant, Paul. Thank you for the lessons which come from his life and example. I pray in Jesus' name, but we will this morning not be hearers only of your word, but doers also. In his name, amen. Thank you, Ash.